0: Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime.
1: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
2: Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. It was a fantasy plan for a mythical country that only exists apparently in the minds of Ottawa liberals and like-minded Laurentian elites that forgets about the the regions and the resource workers, who have been the motor of Canadian prosperity in recent decades,
0: when you hear the words of Mr. Kenny of the Premier of Alberta, and his assessment of the speech from the throne, what do you say about it?
3: I would say ditto. This speech from the throne uh, did nothing to support. Uh, uh, you know, the, the industries that are creating wealth in western Canada, the industries ultimately that by extension are creating wealth for uh, many, many Canadians. Uh, you know, most most uh, prominent among them is the energy industry, but there is a mining industry, the agriculture industry, other uh, industries that are facing headwinds, uh, in part uh, due to uh, the, the, the global situation, but also in part due to the regulatory environment coming out of Ottawa. And just once, I think, uh, just once. Uh, leaders, of industrial leaders uh, in the energy industry, the mining industry and political leaders in Western Canada would like to hear our federal government just one step forward and say we support uh, the Canadians that are working in this industry, we support our energy industry um, it is one of the most sustainable industries in the world and it's responsible for over $100 billion worth of exports each and every year it's a good industry for Canada and it's a good industry for the world once we'd like to hear someone in the federal government come out with those types of statements
0: did you expect anything different in the speech where you perhaps led to believe there there would be something that would be supportive of the energy sector and certainly the agriculture sector which is critical to uh, well just sustaining uh sustaining life in this country?
3: Well, it's it's critical also to, not only to for the uh, the food that we provide, but it's also critical in the in the whole climate change conversation. As is the energy industry uh, in Western Canada. I mean, listen, I'm an eternal optimist. I always think that at the end of the day, common sense uh, will prevail here in this in this nation of Canada. And despite uh, the disagreements that we've had with this Prime Minister and. And uh, and and his government in general on their direction uh, that they have taken that has been a, a real affront uh, to the energy industry and and other industries that are creating wealth in our in our province. I I, I always hold out hope um, that they will come to their senses and they will a step forward and and realize that the programs that they actually want to put in place, all of these skateboard parks and the uh, you know the, uh, the 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 social programs that that in some cases are necessary, they need to pay for them and there are there is a whole vibrant saskatchewan and canadian economy um, that is available and has been available for decades now to help fund the things that the things that this government wants to invest in and the things that canadians want to invest in but when you kneecap these industries like the energy industry you aren't going to be able to pay for these pie in the sky ideas that you have that you want to that you want to invest in
0: yeah it's like flattening your own tires before you go out on a drive it doesn't make any sense at all
3: it's like flattening your own tires before you enter into the Indy 500. Uh, it's, it's it's a race. Uh, you know the global economy is a race, and you need to have uh, you know some high performance equipment that is well serviced. Um, we we're we're not we're not in a good place uh, in this nation. When if we continue down the, the regulatory path that we are, you know, and we can point back to the Bill C-69, uh, which will end up in constitutional court, the carbon tax, which was in uh, the highest court of this nation last week uh, with, I believe, the majority of Canadians uh, and the majority of provinces um, arguing against the federal government. If, if, if you're a, a national government, you have the majority of the provincial and territorial leaders um, coming at you in the highest court in the land. Would you not pause for a moment and say maybe we should reassess and rediscuss on this particular this particular ideological initiative that isn't working uh, it's not set, it's not reducing emissions or doing anything that they uh, had originally said it would do? Well I would <laughs> but. I would as well
0: <laughs> but no, look, uh, we also had polling that was done by Ipsos, and uh, a majority of Canadians, when they talk about economic recovery, and that's critically important to everybody, want. Uh, the oil industry and natural gas industry to be key players in that. It's it's obvious the polling was done just a matter of days ago, and we have to remember, Premier, and you know it well, 700-plus thousand barrels of foreign oil are brought into this country every day, Brought and, and Quebecers just uh, did a poll for the Montreal Economic Institute, and they want their oil from Western Canada, and they want their oil to be delivered by pipeline. This is the average Quebec citizen.
3: It's, it's where the energy should come from, um, not only for a a national energy security from that perspective. But it should come from Western Canada from an environmental perspective because it is some of the most sustainable energy that you can access in the world. We're one pipeline short of of, in, of making that happen. The pipeline um, that the federal government uh, shut down essentially with their introduction, even before their introduction of Bill C-69, we saw the proponent walk away from that. We saw the proponent walking away from the pipeline that the federal government ultimately built as well. Uh, listen, we're, we're facing this question in Saskatchewan right now as we're heading into an election season is, is who is better? Best, uh, or who do you trust uh, to, to recover the economy uh, in Saskatchewan? Well, the same question bodes, bodes across this nation. is who, who do you trust and who is best to recover the economy post-COVID in the, in the nation of Canada? Um, you have a federal government right now that wants to invest, you know, literally hundreds of billions of dollars, already have in some cases, into pharmacare and into, uh, you know, other initiatives that tread dangerously close uh, to provincial jurisdiction. Um, but if you want to make these investments they need to be paid for and they aren't going to be paid for by some new economy that the federal government all of a sudden finds or develops or makes um, they're going to be paid for by the economy that has traditionally um, been successful in employing canadians from coast to coast to coast in communities right across this country uh, that yeah. that is a fact
0: premier what about the virtual conference uh, that you chaired with the other premiers of this country just recently a few days ago
3: how much well, of I, a factor am, was uh, oh, no, go ahead. Uh, how much of a factor was which, which story right
0: i was going to ask you about the, th- the speech from the throne how much that was yeah. part of the discussion
3: well, that was the majority of this discussion as you know our council of federation uh, has been meeting virtually weekly for the last 25 or 30 uh 30 weeks um i, I think i may go down in history as, as chairing more council of federation meetings than, than any other premier in in the nation we usually have one possibly two a year and we've been into them weekly throughout this uh, this global pandemic. Um, but I, I, I did hand the chair off at this virtual meeting officially to uh, Premier Francois Legault and I know he's going to uh, do a great job and he did a great job chairing uh, this meeting and, and we have a great set we, we have a great number of colleagues at that table. It is a a consensus based table and I'm very proud of my time uh, chairing the table and look forward to my time uh, continuing to participate in that table at the, at the, uh, uh if, if the people of Saskatchewan, uh, so choose to return our government uh, to power here on October the 26th. And we are humbly asking for their support right now. But it, it's, a, it's a, it's a great table, uh, to come to consensus and to come to consensus on issues on behalf of, of all Canadians. And I would say, that it is one of the most fundamental and necessary tables uh, right now uh, to ensure that the questions are being asked not only by opposition uh, parties in the House, but questions are being asked from the, all regions of the nation of this federal government so that they're being held accountable for the decisions that they, that they are coming forward with. And some of them I, I just don't know that they're going to be able to move on.
0: I think the uh, Council of the Federation is critically important to uh, not only the future of Canada, but the present of Canada. And, uh, yeah, thank you for the job you did, uh, chairing them, the, the meetings. And I always learned a lot. And, uh, Premier, I always appreciate you coming on the show. Now, let me just ask you one 20 second question. You're, you have an election in Saskatchewan, 26th of October is when, uh, f- the people vote. Is, is this the right climate to be considering a federal election before the end of the year? 54%, I think, of Canadians told Ipsos they would be in favor of a federal election this year.
3: Yeah. Well, I, 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 don't, I won't say when a federal election should be held, but we're the second one. New Brunswick uh, did theirs. Uh, we'll be the third one, actually. British Columbia will go uh, two days uh, before us. Uh, the throne speech came out the, day, uh, the other day. I said the other day that there should be no MPs supporting uh, that speech from the throne. Um, I think you've seen two opposition parties that will be voting against it. One, it sounds like we'll be supporting and propping up uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and this Liberal minority government. And uh, I think now, in fairness, um, that, that party, the NDP party, needs to be held accountable for the decision that they have made. Um, this is the ultimately the hostile takeover of the NDP by the Liberal Party of Canada. They are one and the same across this nation uh, as, as we move forward, in my mind.
0: The phone speech, did it give you any reason to think Mr. Trudeau prorogued Parliament for any other reason than to shut down the Parliamentary Ethics and Finance Committees investigating him and Bill Morneau?
4: No, there was, and I don't say that as a partisan, I say it as, you know, a member of a community in Calgary that really needed a plan. Um, and, and, you know, there is nobody who has been untouched by the events of the last six months we were looking for things like a timeline on rapid testing and home testing uh, reviews, so that we could have more tools that would help us get life back to normal. Some um, plans around how we can get the hospitality and tourism industry back, how et cetera. Like just even what we're going to talk about, the faces of advocacy issue. Like, there's just nothing in it, and um, it's just really it's really disenchanting disenheart- for me. I. I uh, gave a big speech in the House of Commons, but now the House has resumed, that Parliament has resumed. Um, the free ride is over for Trudeau. We can't just keep shuttering our democratic institutions. And, you know, I, I do have hope that we're going to be able to affect change. And the fight started this week.
0: Canadians told Ipsos polling, and I'm going to be speaking with Daryl Bricker later, the CEO, president of Ipsos, that uh, economic recovery is the number one priority and that includes maximizing the oil and natural gas industries. Now, Michelle, perhaps I dozed off during the throne speech and Mr. Truro's subsequent remarks, but I heard nothing about how oil and gas would assist in creating economic recovery in this country.
4: You know, I didn't either. And every every person in this country, including the people in my province Alberta, of Alberta, we care about, you know, a clean economy, climate change. We care about getting these things right. But Trudeau can't just write off the entire energy sector, all of the people who work in it, the wealth that we create that allows for things like the to be paid out and just walk away. And that's really what's happened over the last five years. Um, and also, we're not going to all be driving, you know, solar-powered cars tomorrow or relying on non-carbon based energy tomorrow. There's a transition period and Canadian energy we should be using our own products rather than importing them from other places around the world as part of that transition. And there's, you know, he could have put forward a vision that could have given so many people hope and he didn't. Even on some of the very sort of uh, word programs that the liberals like to talk about that we should be talking about things like child care very important issue. There was no details around, she talked about it, but there was no plan in there to deliver. And I think at this point in time, you know, what Canadians need is some compassion for their life situation, and they need a leader that they can trust to deliver on programs that are going to make a difference for them, right? Like the prorogation of Parliament, it's going to result in the um, stopping of CERB benefits, right? That's my understanding, that there will be a gap in that because they, they had to prorogue to shut down the ethics committee. That's not somebody you can trust. And I think that those issues really came to the forefront. But, you know, going forward now, it's really going to be incumbent upon every parliamentarian, regardless of political stripe, to be pushing Trudeau and saying enough is enough, cause we've got to get the country back on track. Yeah, well, and I'm confident Michelle, we can do that.
0: The uh, the fundamental argument in favor of prorogation that came from Mr. Trudeau was... There would be some really significant, and I use the word revolutionary here, but I anticipated something revolutionary in the uh, speech from the throne, and all I heard was political justification. But at the same time, the New Democrats are now uh, said to have made a deal with the, the liberals to avoid a non-confidence defeat of, uh, of the liberal government and to lead, to lead into a federal election. I, I just have a sense, and, and really I heard, basically heard this from Aaron O'Toole when he was on the show, Conservative Party doesn't want an election either. Right now,
4: we want to plan, right? Like, i like to me, that is the number one objective for me as as a parliamentarian who has responsibility for you know, one hundred and twenty thousand or so people in the country. Like, I, they need to know how they're getting back to work. If they're going to be able to have Christmas dinner, I mean, people who are listening today who are thinking like, "Oh, okay, I, I, maybe I should get a COVID test," but don't want to spend an hour our lineup but these are things that should have planned for that should have been in the throne speech and that's what we needed right yeah i but agree people not supporting the speech from the throne because there was no plan there
0: give me about 60 seconds of what really is required as far as health care is concerned in canada that's issue number one and you've already told us how dissatisfied you are and we've heard it from other people as well but dissatisfied with the way the government handled the initial issues and challenges of, of covid
4: so, you know, for me, there's sort of three priorities um, as the federal minister for health. Number one is we can't allow the government to keep making decisions related to the pandemic using the same broken systems they've been using since early this year, right? So, the the processes that you know have have seen them put forward information that has been factually and you know, deadly wrong, like for example, not closing the borders or uh, saying that there was no human trans human transmission of COVID or that the risk was low, um, I'm, I'm and then the second part because if we don't change those things, right? If we don't change those systems, then we're just going to keep repeating these failures. So that's number one. Number two is ensuring that some of the key tools that we need in place uh, to to sort of get back to that place of normalcy and keep people healthy, like rapid testing, like at home testing, that we pressure the government. Um, to ensure yeah. that those are reviewed, so yeah. that they're available. And the third thing is making sure that we have an economic recovery plan and that we're also preparing for future uh, scenarios like this so that we don't get caught with our pants down again.
0: Okay, so tell us, please, about the family reunification issue. Faces of Advocacy is the. Uh, the organization Faces of Advocacy at YouTube.com is where you can go and, and follow this rally. Um, and you're very much involved with Sarah Campbell and uh, and her fiancé, Jacob, who will be back on the air with us uh, tomorrow. And you approached uh, Bill Blair, the public safety minister, earlier this week. So just give us a sense of, uh, of what this is about to you. This
4: is about compassion um, and and. Seeing compassion over and, and basic humanity over bureaucratic garbage, um, I the fact that the government hasn't figured out how to bring close family and loved ones that you know don't necessarily fit the definition of I have a paper marriage certificate is a big problem. There's huge mental health concerns associated with that. Like imagine right now for somebody listening, imagine that you haven't seen your spouse in seven months or that you're in a very uh, serious health crisis and you can't see your kids because of bureaucracy. And there nobody here is asking for special exceptions. You know, people are willing to do the quarantine, that sort of stuff, but we should be having a plan to move beyond that, right? Like, I don't understand why the government hasn't started a feasibility study, at least a feasibility study for pre- and post-arrival testing, uh, like other countries have done, why we don't yeah. have rapid testing and why there's not these exemptions. The exemption it's such an easy thing to do. Um, and the fact that they haven't moved on it, and some people have been apart from their spouses for seven months, is just completely unacceptable. Can you give me and, just uh, a... Touch, go out.
0: Can you just tell us very quickly what happened when you gave that uh, that letter to Bill Blair?
4: And on I behalf of Sarah of Campbell? Of I'm sorry? He walked out of the House of Commons. So, I mean, I just... Like, this woman has written him over 100 letters and hasn't yeah. received a response. It's just... It's ridiculous. And it it should, it's not just her case. It's not just, you know, it, mm-hmm. people should not be separated from their loved ones unduly in situations like this for no reason. Yeah. And that's how I feel it is right now. It's, it's, right. it's just should... unimaginable.
1: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system.
0: This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta, tomorrow you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. What have Canadians told Ipsos about current concerns with the pandemic and coronavirus? Can we start with that?
5: Yeah, we're very worried. Seventy-five percent of us say that uh, we're likely to experience a second wave. Uh, I guess relatively prescient, because a lot of people in government are now saying that we actually are going through it. And they they really uh, um, prefer a very uh, strong approach to controlling this. In fact, even going back to something similar to what we experienced at the start, Of of this crisis, the first wave, when we shut down so many things, about three quarters of us say that we should be shutting down non-essential businesses if we find ourselves in in a second wave.
0: Yeah, there's a there's a greater sense of concern. I've certainly heard it over the last days, particularly Um, certainly more than we've heard over the last number of months Uh, where this goes. uh, Time will tell, but it's a very interesting poll. Also. You did a poll for the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers, Mm -hmm. and uh, nationally, Canadians are in strong agreement that Canada's oil and natural gas industries must be a significant part of an economic recovery from COVID-19. What's the information you can share with us?
5: I think there's two parts to that, at least two things that I get out of it. One is the urgency of getting the the economy rebooted. Uh, People are feeling a, a great deal of anxiety about the future of the economy, and basically any industry uh, that can get us back on track, we're interested in, in seeing that being part of the recovery. The second thing is that Canadians really do believe that oil and gas is part of what we do in this country. Now, I know that there are significant groups of, uh, of uh, people, particularly those who live in places like downtown Montreal or downtown Vancouver, downtown Toronto, who might not actually agree to that. But when you get out into the wider uh, population uh, in, in Canada and you talk to them about the things that we do, oil and gas is part of that. So they they, uh, they do see it as part of the recovery. They actually see it as part of the Canadian economy in general.
0: Darrell, when we hear that uh, 75% of Canadians are concerned, sufficiently concerned, about a second wave of COVID-19, sufficiently so that they would consider Uh, another lockdown to be an option they might approve of. And at the same time, you have uh, a strong majority of Canadians worried about uh, the economy and saying that's critically important to get it restarted. Uh, How do you dovetail the two?
5: Well, I I think they're actually directly linked. Um, The reason that they want a strong um, uh, response to whatever is going to go on if we have a second wave is they know that we can't get through to an economic recovery until we get the virus under control. So this is not, uh, this is not uh, an issue that you can deal with in half measures. People have come to the belief that uh, uh, the health threat is significant. They may not necessarily feel it for themselves personally, but they certainly are sympathetic for the people who are suffering from COVID-19. But they know that unless they can get this under control, we can't get to the thing that everybody is worried about right now and, and many, many of us are suffering from, and that's economic uncertainty and inability to go to work tomorrow.
0: Yeah, th- was it? of Canadians rank Canada's current economic conditions as somewhat or very bad.
5: Yeah, they do. And, and, you know, the interesting thing on that, Roy, is is we we think that this just started. In fact, it started about a year ago. And when you go back to the last election campaign, part of the reason that the Liberal Party did not do as well as it did, or as it it should have in that campaign, uh, if you would have just... Uh, you know, listen to pundits and, and, and others who co- were just contrasting the to Andrew Scheer, is that the overall context of the economy was not good, and it had been sliding for several months before that. In terms of not necessarily ac- actual economic performance, but how people were feeling about it, uh, and it's just continued on a downward slide. And then COVID hit, and it even went further down. So yeah, we're uh, we're, we're we're quite morose about the economy right now.
0: now Two thirds of Canadians recognize. Uh, green recovery must include Canada's oil and natural gas sector. Of the 13% who felt the sector should be shut down, do they have any idea or concept of what would replace oil and natural gas immediately?
5: No, they don't. And, and, uh, well, they might. I mean, they, they might actually think that it can be completely replaced by, you know, alternative methods or whatever. But these are the, the, that, that 13% is a fairly consistent group over time. And it's basically anything that relates to capitalism, anything that relates to big industry, they're not on side with. Okay. Uh, so, um, you know, the, the more activist types within our, within our population. So they not, not just have problems with oil and gas. They have problems with many aspects of the economy and would like to see, uh, greater reform. of of how we uh, generate wealth they have a new definition of what that looks like in their minds but uh, it's not very realistic in comparison uh, in the views of the rest of the canadian population so when i saw the numbers on oil and gas i wasn't surprised because this these numbers are consistent over time
0: a lot of people say that COVID 19 has changed things forever and you said to me that's not the case it's amplified what's going on can you pick up on that
5: yeah it really has i mean there's all sorts of people who had theories about how the world was going to go prior to this hitting, and all of a sudden, oh my God, just look, its everything that I've said is now going to happen. Well, not really. <laughs> uh, some things will continue, some things won't. We'll see where we go. But uh, what I talk about in the book next, all of this was already happening. And what's happened as a result of COVID is it's just amplified it. And and we really got into a conversation about why, you know, I can say that. And, I, and my point was, if you go back to 1960 and you look at Uh, what canada was like back then and you compare it to what it is today you what you'll see is that the impact of covid on that canada would have been very different from what we're experiencing right now so that canada back in 1960 was much less urban society was much less engaged with other parts of the global population, particularly with the Pacific parts of the population, because we didn't have immigration really from those that, that part of the world. We were a much younger population. We were a more male population. It was a very different place. And, and you know, one thing I was thinking of, just to kind of jar people's imaginations on this a little bit, Roy, back in 1960, Montreal was Canada's number one city.
0: Right, I was there.
5: Right. And it was quite a bit bigger than Toronto. Boy, have things changed.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I was a kid growing up in Montreal, and we always knew Montreal was the number one city because we had the Canadians who won Stanley Cup after Stanley Cup, and we had the Expos, the only major league baseball team in this country. So yeah, an Expo '67, but, but so so a different world, a, di- a different Canada in the 1960s. And Daryl, one of the things that I raised with you was, and it's repeated almost daily, and particularly with a concern about a second wave of COVID. And that is long-term care facilities and the fact that the majority of people who died because of COVID in the first wave were over 80 years of age. And you talked to me about that, how things would have been different in the 1950s and 1960s. Tell us about that, please.
5: Back in the nineteen fifties and sixties, there was almost nobody who was in their eighties. That was the uh, that was the the, uh, the main point. And in fact, now in the Canadian population, we'll have to check the statistics post COVID. But the fastest growing segment of the Canadian population was people eighty years of age or older. And the reason for that is because we've gone through an incredible expansion in aging in this country for a whole series of reasons. Uh, reasons. So back in 1960, the median age of a Canadian was probably in their mid-20s. Well, actually, it was in their mid-20s. Today, the median age of a Canadian, that's the Canadian in which half the population is older and half the population is younger, is 41. So we've gone through this tremendous aging of the Canadian population. And most of of the growth of our population over the last while, uh, obviously, immigration is a big part of it. But the other big part of it is people not dying as early as they used to. Yeah
0: so as a, I entered my teens in the 1960s so my expectation would have been that if statistically that i would have lived how long and how has that changed in that in that, you know subsequent 50 years or however long i can't do math you know what i'm trying to
5: say well what i can tell you years. is that the estimate of how long you would live uh, would probably be about a decade less than you will live
0: in such a short period
5: of time. In such a short period of time. And we talked about this earlier. Uh, the biggest example or best example I can give this of uh, uh, to you is uh, is China, where back in 1950, the average person in China lived to the age of 40. Today, they live to the age of 80. We haven't seen as big an expansion in, in Canadian uh, longevity. But even just to give you a, maybe a representative date, if you go back to the 1920s, the average Canadian only lived to the age of 57.
0: That's amazing. That is amazing. Fifty-seven people. If you're fifty-seven now, you're young,
5: right? And and so that. If you're sixty-seven, talk, you're young, right? That's why I talk about in the book the the triumph of what I call a, a population group called the perennials, which are the people who are just not are, are not going away. <laughs> they're just not leaving as much as they, uh, as fast yeah. as they used to. So, you know, one of the issues that I know we, you talk about on your show, Roy, I know certainly an issue in, in the area where you're in, which is, you know, Hamilton, I live in the, in the GTA here in Toronto, is real estate. Well, you want to understand why we have such a, a pressure on real estate. It's not just new people coming into both of those places. It's that the people who would have previously left are not leaving. So what's happening is older people are aging in place they're staying in their family homes they're not moving into uh, you know these collective care situations to nearly the degree that people expected that they would be uh, moving into them and all of these houses are in um, particularly in the most desirable neighborhoods are not changing over because the people who are in them aren't moving
0: Wow, that just changes
5: everything and doesn't it? I mean that it changes everything No, right it's People don't talk about it. It's like, oh, no, it's yeah. foreign buyers, or it's we're not making enough supply. No, it's older people are just, they love the neighborhoods they're in, and they're not leaving. They're aging in place.
0: What are some of the other uh, factors about life in, uh, in, in in this decade, the beginning of the decade, uh, that would reflect d- differently? And I, what, how, how are some of the other things that have changed um, that would make COVID a different reality, say, 20, 30 years ago? 40 years ago?
5: Well, I think that one of the biggest ones is where our sources of immigration are. So, the the level of contact, so if you look at the top three sources of immigration to Canada today, they're, depending on the year you look at it, the Philippines, uh, India, or China. If you go back to the 1980s, the number one source of immigration in Canada was still the United Kingdom. So, we've gone through a massive change in the types of uh, of, uh, Uh, the the sources of immigration that we've got in this country, and it's established a much stronger connection to the Pacific uh, part of the world than to the Atlantic part of the world. So a lot of the influences that that we're having in Canada these days are actually coming from the Pacific. And so if you've got a, a population that's traveling there at a much greater level because you know, they're going home to visit family or that uh, maybe they have dual citizenship or whatever, the likelihood that something that happens there could come into Canada now is much higher than it would have been back in 1960, because we didn't have a similar type of connection.
3: Yeah. Uh, we now, didn't that's
5: ha- obvious if you walk around the streets of Vancouver, but we don't realize how much we've changed over yeah. that period of, you know, 60, 60 years.
0: And the international travel wasn't anywhere near what it is now well it's not you know right now it's not what it was but say say a year ago uh, there was nowhere near the kind of international travel in nineteen sixties nineteen sixties compared to two thousand nineteen
5: well in nineteen sixty that you know technologically we were not capable of doing what we can do now but uh, the other part was the desirability of, of going back and seeing family, uh, being driven by um, by uh, the need to go to Pacific nations, was not like it was back in, in, in 1960, where most people oriented over the Atlantic Ocean rather than over the Pacific Ocean. Our immigration population back then was overwhelmingly from Western Europe, Russia, places like that, where uh, people were coming from those countries, not from Asia
0: in the about a minute we have left when you look at 2020 and how it's turning out with covid and we're just assuming it's going to carry over into 2021 hope it doesn't but you know be a realist perhaps uh what how will that change the years to come is there any way to predict that
5: yeah i think that one of the the thing that we can we can look at is how the canadian population is changing itself it's becoming a more suburban population so where we're going to see the effects of this, I, I would say, uh, we're really going to have to keep an eye on is not the downtowns, it's really the suburbs, uh, which are the new entry gateway entry points to cities. So they're the most important parts of the country in terms of change right now. Uh, we're going to have to continue to, to respect the fact that our population is actually quite an elderly population and that we're, we are especially exposed to the effects of something like COVID because our population is so old. So we're going to really have to pay attention to the, the elderly parts of the population. And the other thing, and this is people don't talk about this, but um, the disproportionate potential for this to affect males over females. Uh, it's interesting when you look at all the data on um, uh, what women are doing in comparison to what men are doing to protect yeah. themselves from COVID, men yeah. are more exposed because they don't follow doctor's advice they're not going to wear masks as much. If there's a vaccine available, they won't take it as much. So we have to pay particular attention to communicating with men.
0: And the CFIB supports initiatives announced in the speech from the throne. So it causes me to ask, is the pressure now somewhat lowered on Canada's small business sector? Did you know this, by the way? They employ, the CF, the, the, the small business sector in Canada, employs 69.7% of all Canadians who work in the private sector. 69.7%. And I got this directly from Government of Canada website. And I think it's over 8 million Canadians work in the small business sector. It's huge. It's the number one employer sector in, uh, in the private sector, if you're not working for the public sector. Dan Kelly joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Dan, thank you very much. For taking the time, I know it's a difficult week for you personally. So, um, thanks very much.
2: Oh, happy uh, to be with you.
0: Large number of small businesses in this country remain under great financial strain, and in danger of closing their doors. Has this speech from the throne provided a bit of a a boost, a shot in the arm, a sense of maybe things are going to get better?
2: You know, it, it certainly is a help. Uh, there were there was some good news for small business owners in the speech. Uh, the government has extended the standard emergency wage subsidy, uh, for out until mid next year. Uh, and that's, that's a real plus but to have small businesses with the ability now to plan that if they try to hire back their workers or perhaps retain their workers, that there is going to be some support if their sales don't materialize. We don't know the details of what it's going to look like yet, so there may be a few twists and turns along the way. But but it is good news that the throne speech has laid out the direction to do that. The other thing that we are pleased about in the throne speech, there are a few things that worry us. But the other thing that that is a real positive is the government has announced its intention to uh, to 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 use the Canada RTT Business Account, the CBA loans, as they're known, uh, to try to support some of small businesses' fixed costs. We don't know what that means exactly. We're hoping that that will mean that it that, that might include some of the rent bills that small business owners are facing, that really, the, the, you know, the existing supports have just not worked.
0: Yeah, now the devil is always, as the cliche says, in the details. And I do remember there was a, a rent um, assistance program that was announced that never, ever worked out. Uh, do you have a sense... That what you heard is actually actually has nuts and bolts attached to it. That there's a, a structure to this, and they're ready to roll it out so that small business can take advantage of it.
2: I don't have a I don't have a firm uh, sense yet as to exactly what that will look like. Uh, what I'm hope and I have spoken to both uh, finance minister and deputy prime minister Christy Freeland. I've also spoken to small business minister Mary Ing. What What I'm hoping this will mean is that there will be some, some, a new way of assisting rent. The current SECRA program, as it's known to support rent, requires business owners to go through their landlords. And the, and the methodology has never really worked. You know, you can have a huge business loss, you qualify for the program, but you have a landlord that's not willing to apply for the loan that is necessary to give you the subsidy and so forth, therefore you get nothing. Uh, we are hoping, and the government's language in the throne speech suggests, that there may be a new pathway to do that. They have made clear they're not renewing secret beyond September. Um, that could be a good thing for, for more businesses that, that may be eligible uh, with with the new approach the government may be taking. But, I, but again, I've been burned several times because the announcements sound good, but then businesses go try and try to use these programs and find out there's an exception here, an exception there. And then walk away frustrated, not getting the assistance support
0: that they need. Dan, uh, when I spoke with Premier Mo at the beginning of the hour, and we talked about the uh, speech from the throne, the premier expressed uh, great dissatisfaction with with the with the speech, and said there was nothing there for the oil and natural gas sectors, and there was nothing there for the agricultural sector. So, if we look at small business entrepreneurship within those three sectors—oil, natural gas, and agriculture—how are they doing?
2: You know, it is—it is a big, big worry. Uh, you're absolutely—he's absolutely, absolutely right—that there are massive gaps in the speech. Uh, and in fact, one of the things that we were hoping to see in the throne speech that didn't, we didn't see was putting some of the tax hikes on hold. Uh, one, I'm sure the Premier must have mentioned this, but the federal carbon tax that was imposed by Ottawa on five provinces, the government, that, that's supposed to go up again in, in the spring of next year. No signs that they're going to, in fact, the language in the Trump speech suggests they're going full steam ahead with that. Secondly, uh, Canada pension plan premiums are going up. Every Canadian's paycheck will go down on January 1st, meaning that it'll be a little bit tighter by a few hundred dollars, and every Canadian Employers' payroll budget will be tightened further because of a CPP premium increase. We've asked at CFID that the government put that on hold, but unfortunately that didn't happen. The other big worry for us, beyond the sectors that you've just mentioned, is that the government is considering expanding the, the employment insurance account to include more self-employed workers and gig economy workers. I understand why they're motivated to do that during the pandemic, but we've got to be careful not to make permanent, expensive policy changes without without really thinking them through. And I'm quite worried what might happen to EI. Yeah,
0: uh, there isn't a lot of margin there for employers, and uh, and people are already struggling. Canadians are struggling with their with their finances before the pandemic started. We heard that uh, 49% of Canadians were within $200 of not being able to pay their monthly bills. So, you know, if it goes up a couple of hundred dollars for a lot of people, that is, that takes them right, either right onto the edge or pushes them over the edge. And it's something government should consider, be thinking about. Well, we also have now, of course, a number of provinces are taking the federal government before the Supreme Court. And that began on Tuesday. And Saskatchewan and Alberta specifically. our cases are being heard by the court. Let me ask you this: Are different areas of Canada under different levels of stress as far as small business is concerned?
2: There's, there's no question. We have seen uh, some provinces fare better through this than others. Uh, one of the things that's been really interesting: it's not just you know there are some uh, you know some of our major commodities like oil and gas, agriculture have been have been hit uh, by this, but larger urban cities. Have also been hit really hard. A lot of our members that are in areas that are, you know, where there's a ton of office towers, they are virtual ghost towns still. If you're in small, if you're in a really small town, rural, remote community, uh, you know, you, you may have had not a bad summer because tourists have been motivated to get out of big cities because of COVID. But business travel has ground to a halt, and mm. and office workers are still down. You know, probably 75% or more in most of the major towers in Toronto, Montreal, you know, Winnipeg, Ottawa, you name it. That is causing huge pressures in downtown areas, and I don't expect that we're going to see a huge improvement until office workers are back at work, and that may mean that that's after uh, some form of vaccine of, uh, is is widely distributed.
0: So I don't want to ask this question, but I have to. What would an, What would another... Major lockdown. What effect would that have on small business across Canada?
2: Gosh, Roy, it it would be grave. I mean, we are not finished. The economic effects of wave one of COVID nineteen have not passed us. Uh, they are still hitting businesses day after day. Many of them have not seen their most of them have not seen their sales return anywhere close to normal. If we add a second wave to the mix and have more businesses close down, we've just seen some businesses in Ontario uh, close. I think strip clubs were were announced to be closed in Ontario. British Columbia further reduced serving liquor after 10 p.m. They've closed down uh, uh, many of the private clubs, et cetera. We could see some really, really serious long-term uh, business fatalities and casualties come out of this. Uh, there's no room for error here. I'm hoping that we keep COVID under control so that the provinces don't have to resort to that um, because there there isn't much more, much more room here. We are going to see businesses fail as a result of this. It's just right now a matter of how many. Yeah. 69.7% of uh,
0: uh, private business provides, well, this private business provides 60, 69.7% of. Private employment in this country it's it's massive, and and if there were really significant or any loss of more businesses, the employment numbers would be increasing, and it's the snowball that you know goes down the hill and just picks up more snow. Then you have the EI and you have all those additional expenses that are added, and and governments have to get ahead of it and not not be reactionary. And that's what I think that's what scares a lot of people that we have. Political parties that are driven more by what their agendas are than by common sense.
2: There are some big, big gaps. Uh, the, the throne speech also doesn't put the brakes on non-COVID spending. Look, I I recognize that governments are going to go deep, deep into debt. Both provinces and the federal government uh, take on more deficits right now to help us through the COVID emergency. And we as Canadians are going to have to just suck it up and pass the bills to some of our kids to, to make that happen. But we should be very cautious about any non-COVID related spending, and that was the other big concern in the throne speech. They didn't go quite as far as perhaps they might have a few weeks ago, what the signals were. But there still is a lot of non-COVID related spending in the mm-hmm. in the throne speech, and we're you know we've got to be careful when we see our budget in a couple of weeks what that's going to look like.
0: Yeah, and we do know already, Dan, the taxes are not going to cover the bills. Taxes are not going to cover the bills. They probably won't even cover the interest. And so now what we have, we have a plan where, well, we'll just borrow money, but we can borrow money with a downgraded uh, credit rating at a time when interest, pay, interest rates are low, and we keep hearing governments saying, well, you know, the interest rates are a record low, this is the time to borrow. That is just, a, that is such folly, because what you, what are you doing? You're banking on that well, the interest rate rates are not going to go up? This is, I mean, it's Argentina
2: it is it is a big worry and and i i don't like we learned the lessons the hard way in canada by by racking yeah. up debt, and it didn't all happen at once it happened over you know decades of of borrowing more than we actually
0: yeah.
2: uh could spend uh, we are headed back for that and and look COVID is an exception we have to make sure that we we buckle down and and get through this of course but post-covid we've got to be lean if we're going to get the budget, budget back in back